0: Hello everybody. Welcome. Hi. Hi. How's everybody doing? (laughs) Okay. Good. (laughs) I'm doing good too. I think my panelists are doing well as well. Um, Welcome to Secrets and Silences, When and How to Reveal Challenging Histories. Uh, My name is Annie Anderson. I'm the Manager of Research and Public Programming at Eastern State Penitentiary Historic Site here in Philly. Did anybody get a chance to visit last night or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Cool. Um, I'm a little bit tired from the event last night, but I'm excited to be here today. Um, I am joined by Adrienne Whaley of Philly Museum of the American Revolution, Charisse Blakeney of the Mid-Atlantic Regional Center for the Humanities, um, and also a public historian at Bartram's Garden here in Philadelphia, and Dennis Pickerel, who is um, the director of Philly's Stenton Historic House Museum in Germantown. Um, so, we, are, we have an all-star hometown panel for you, and we're really excited to welcome you to our city and tell you about all the cool public history work that's happening in Philadelphia. And there's a through line connecting all of the work that we do. Um, so, I just wanted to name that. So it's that we are the excavators, the storytellers, and the conveners of difficult, marginalized histories. So, we're navigating the stories and erasures around incarceration, slavery, indentured servitude, and their attendant traumas and legacies. And so I just wanted to say it seemed appropriate in setting the context for a panel about historic erasures and silences to just acknowledge um, a particular form of erasure that happens in the United States, which is the erasure around indigenous sovereignty and native peoples. Um, so I just wanted to recognize that we are on the traditional lands of the Lenni Lenape people. Um, who were in the Delaware Valley for 10,000 years before European settlers came here. Um, so to quote the US Department of Arts and Culture, land acknowledgments by themselves are just small gestures. They become meaningful when coupled with authentic relationship and informed action. But this beginning can be an opening to a greater public consciousness of Native sovereignty and cultural rights a step toward equitable relationship and reconciliation. And I think there's a connection to the work that we're doing, trying to excavate these hidden histories and create more equitable narratives at our sites and more equitable futures. Okay, so with that, I'm going to transition to talking a little bit about Eastern State Penitentiary and the work that I do um, before discussing some of the questions that led me to formulate this panel. So Eastern State Penitentiary, um, as many of you know, was built on a cherry orchard outside of Philadelphia in the 1820s. It was an active state prison from 1829 until 1970. It closed and was abandoned for 20 years before becoming a museum and historic site in the early 1990s. And Eastern State was the first true penitentiary. It was designed to inspire penitence or true regret in the hearts of its inhabitants. Um, It also was the first prison to practice solitary confinement on a large scale. And um, its radial plan architecture influenced the design of over 300 prisons around the world. So it was both philosophically significant and architecturally influential to criminal justice practices and the construction of carceral spaces. So, um, here is, are some photos from the late 1890s a vaulted, skylit cell block, and a solitary prisoner caning a chair alone in his cell. Prison officials thought that um, solitude, would induce reflection. Reflection would induce penitence. Penitence would um, cause someone to turn their life around to live an honest life when they left the penitentiary so they could transition to the outside world easier. Um, prisoners were eventually allowed to congregate. The prison shifted to do a congregate model in the early 1900s. People were allowed to work and worship and recreate together, and they did so until the prison closed in 1970. Today, the site stands in ruin. It's far too expensive to renovate, so we take a stabilized ruin approach to conservation and preservation. And our visitors really love how decrepit and photogenic it is. Um, So most of our visitors experience the site via a self-guided audio tour. We also have a robust lineup of guide-led group tours as well. Um, In 2018, we attracted 275,000 visitors, and we're on track to surpass that in 2019. So that's our um, historic site. Um, our interpretive framework is modeled, is based around um, sites of conscience dialogic models. Um, we seek to build dialogue, ask open-ended questions to connect the past to the present and really dig into the history and continued relevance of our building. But um, because of the abandoned nature of the building, it's often hard to remember that 80,000 people lived in the building, um, including all of the people on this slide. Um, And in many ways, in my role as researcher at Eastern State, I'm dealing with the silences that the building presents to me. This is what the building looks like today. We do have a small collection of artifacts, but um, for the most part, the people who lived in the building did not leave a whole lot behind. Um, So how do I come to learn about them? Well, one of the ways I do this is through genealogy. Um, I like to think of genealogy as history of, by and for the people because it's become so accessible to folks via ancestry and family search. More and more prison records are showing up on ancestry, um, prompting genealogists to reach out to me about their ancestors who were incarcerated at the Eastern State. So it's actually my work with genealogists that informed the creation of this panel. And in 2018, I received about 70 genealogy requests about specific prisoners, and I'm on track to, re- to uh, hit about 100 requests from, um, about individual prisoners. But doing genealogy research, like any kind of prison public history, can entail um, divulging uncomfortable truths, walking a researcher through embarrassment, hurdling shame and family secrets um, to get to the truth, and finding historical documentation that refutes a person or a family's narrative about themselves. Um, so genealogy requests allow me to do these micro-level research projects that actually um, kind of highlight these macro questions informing my work, including what, if anything, do we owe historic actors? Is it possible and advisable to ask for consent from historic actors to share their stories? And are we outing people by revealing their secrets, particularly um, around criminality or other histories deemed shameful? So I'm going to speak to some of these questions in my presentation. I hope my co-panelists will also wrestle with them as well. Um, and when I ask my panelists to start thinking with me through these questions about today's discussion, I ask them to grapple with these questions here. Why do we do this work? Um, what has prompted you or your site to reveal a challenging narrative? Is it a strategic plan, a genealogist's request, an obvious gap in the historic record that you are noticing? How have your constituents responded? Um, what kind of questions do you have about best practices in revealing difficult histories? And what's one piece of advice that you would give your fellow history practitioners as they weigh the costs and benefits of sharing these narratives. So I thought I would just quickly go through my answers to these questions. Um, Why am I doing this work? Well, genealogists want to know about their incarcerated ancestors. They're responding with interest, trepidation, and shame. Um, Help. My question, my ask for help is how do I hang in there with someone grappling with the shame and embarrassment around the commission of a crime or an act that they perceive to be morally wrong and my advice is to reach out for help from others doing this work, and that's why I formulated this panel with these brilliant minds. Um, actually, in the past year, I've had to walk like several genealogists through stories about how their ancestors were convicted of crimes relating to like sexual assault or incest, um, and not to mention early traumas, early death, and histories of incarceration. I don't really know what I'm doing <laughs> in this work. When I was in grad school for... American studies, I learned about American cultural history and theory. I didn't learn how to like hang in there with someone who was rethinking their family tree um, through the lens of incarceration and trauma. So um, I'm not necessarily an expert. The title of this presentation is When and How to Reveal Challenging Histories. I'm not necessarily an expert on the how, but I'm hoping that sharing my stories and sharing the stories of my co-panelists um, and crowdsourcing new ways to do this work uh, will, will help me and will help you hopefully. So I want to share a couple stories about the genealogy research that I do and some particular case studies that informed uh, my work on this panel. Um, so one request I received uh, sort of recently was about Clarence Alexander Ray. He is one of two published poets who was incarcerated at Eastern State. This is his intake card. He was sent to Eastern State in 1916. He wrote a book of poetry called A Tale of a Walled Town which was published under his inmate number only. You can see it there on the screen, B8266. Um, It was published in 1921 during his incarceration. And um, he was imprisoned for sodomy and buggery, which are both sex-related crimes, um, and larceny. And he was accused of taking a 13-year-old boy for, quote, immoral purposes. Um, In a strange turn of events, he became engaged to a woman who was working to secure his release from prison. Um, and his crime was sometimes referred to just as larceny or assault by newspapers. Um, and it, so in Ray's case, I was divulging this uncomfortable truth to the genealogist. Um, and it made me wonder, did the press hide the full details of his crime to make his story as a reformed poet more palatable? And why in the first few years of knowing Ray and researching him did I not know the full details about his crime, including the fact that a child was involved. So this case raised some questions for me about how well-known or successful people are framed in the popular imagination. Um, the second case that I researched recently was that of Matthias or Matthias McCumsey. Um, I received a genealogy request from about him from his great, 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 great niece. And I knew immediately the facts of his case because they are incredibly tragic. Um, he was sent to Eastern State for murder in 1831, and his attempts, repeated attempts, to communicate with other prisoners landed him in trouble with prison officials who placed him in this torturous torture device, the iron gag. Um, this device killed him, and his cause of death in the prison death ledger was listed as apoplexy, which is an antiquated term for stroke. Um, The prison administration was, there was an investigation, they were cleared of all wrongdoing, but the warden and the prison officials weren't necessarily cleared um, or considered innocent in the public imagination. This handbill was produced in 1835 as propaganda to end the use of the iron gag. So doing this genealogy research, I was divulging this uncomfortable truth about this horrible death that this woman's ancestor suffered, and it raised so many questions, including, Um, Did prison officials feel responsibility or remorse for his death? What story was passed down to this person's family, including the genealogist? And on a meta level, as a representative of Eastern State Penitentiary, albeit the historic site, should I apologize to her for his death? Um, So in the midst of all of these questions, I noticed this interesting factoid in the death ledger, which is that his race is listed as black which contradicted the genealogist's self-perception as white. Um, So when I pointed that out to her, um, she was like, oh no, that must be, that's a clerical error. Um, Which was interesting, right? (laughs) There was that quick dismissal that that could have been a part of her family's history. So that just gets to my fourth point about we're sometimes finding narratives that are refuting a person or an institution's self-perception. A genealogy request I received about a month ago, very recently, was about um, also another tragic case of um, 14-year-old Wilmer Jackson. He was sent to Eastern State when he was 14 in 1934. Um, He was convicted of second-degree murder. We think this is a picture of him on the left there. Um, He confessed to killing a man in Philadelphia's Fairmont Park, But a newspaper reported, at least one reported, that he said the confession was choked out of him. Um, He was sent to a youth reformatory shortly after he arrived uh, at Eastern State where he died of tuberculosis at the age of 20. Um, And in a similar vein, I also just received a genealogy request for another young person named Willie Cavalier who was 15 when he arrived at Eastern State. There's some seats um, up in the front if anybody wants to come on in. We'd love to have you. So uh, I was researching Willie Cavalier. He was 15 when he arrived at Eastern State, and Willie Cavalier, like Wilmer Jackson, was transferred out of Eastern State shortly after he arrived. Willie was sent to a psychiatric facility. He also died young at the age of 30 at that facility. And I shared both Wilmer and Willie's stories um, with writers and researchers, not direct Um, descendants. I was grappling with this idea that maybe it's not ethically wrong to share this information with a non-family member, but I did notice that I occupied this sort of weird role as gatekeeper about young children in the criminal justice system, Um, which just circles me back to the set of questions about what, if anything, do we owe historic actors, and also do the rules of engagement change when we're working with the records of children? Um, Is it possible and advisable to ask for consent? From historic actors to share these stories, and are we outing people by revealing their secrets, particularly around crime or or shameful histories? Um, in the case of Wilmer Jackson, there was strong interest in his story from visitors and from staff members. So I took the research that I did and I created this training document for our frontline staff to be able to use to talk about his story with visitors. Um, ultimately, people really want access to these stories, especially descendants. I'm just going to show a couple bits of feedback I've gotten from genealogists. One person wrote, I guess it sounds odd to want to see where my great grandfather spent three years of his life, a family secret that I only recently uncovered. I found his crime in the newspaper trying to kill his wife. I know it's our family. Regardless of the type of feeling that is stirred up, there is a connection to our site that descendants feel that, in a particular way that non-descendants do not feel. Um, Someone wrote, I have mixed emotions about coming to Eastern State. I feel bad for him. Um, Not to mention layers of shame that some people carry. I was on the phone with someone recently, and this woman was talking about this crime that her ancestor committed and said it was a heinous crime. It was sodomy, um, which is a sex-related crime but often used to criminalize LGBTQ people. So um, that's like a weird rabbit hole that I'm not going to take you down right now. (laughs) But I am listening to that kind of thing from time to time on the phone. Um, But again, there's a desire to know, to really get to the bottom of ancestors' stories. A woman wrote me, is listed as having three previous convictions, one for incest and fornication. Am I misreading the record? I'm aware the answer might not be pleasant, but it would be good to know. So there's a a hunger and a desire to know these stories, even despite the feelings that they might stir up. And ultimately, Wilmer Jackson's story, like Willie Cavalier and Matthias Comsey and Clarence alexander Rays they're not really ours. We don't own them. We're simply the custodians of their records. Um, hiding them or treating them with shame or trepidation doesn't necessarily serve our visitors or our staff. So um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to my co-panelists who will discuss why they do their work, their audiences, their questions, their pieces of advice to share. Um, if you have any questions for me, you can shout at me, ask me a question during the Q and A. Um, you can also email me after the presentation. So thank you so much. I'm gonna turn it over to Adrian Whaley. Stand by. Perfect. Uh, yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> okay. yeah. Thank you. All right, so hello everybody. Um, I'm kind of excited to go after Annie because I am a genealogist and so I can kind of approach these things from the other side. So what's listed in the program booklet is that I'm, the, that I'm employed by the Museum of the American Revolution. I'm the senior manager of K through 12 education there. But I'm also the president of Philadelphia's African-American Genealogy Group. I've been doing research since I was about 17 years old. Um, I've been digging deeply into my family history. I give presentations about black genealogy and all sorts of things like that. And so this presentation is going to blend some of um, my experiences and my colleagues' experiences at my institution with my own genealogical research. And I'm probably going to lean a little bit heavier on my own genealogical research. So, how many people have visited the Museum of the American Revolution? Yes, I love this. Also, my boss is in the room, so I hope she saw all those hands go up and I hope she's <laughs> So, we are a new institution. We opened in April of 2017, so we've been over open just over uh, two years at this point, point. and what we're trying to do is not necessarily tell the story of the American Revolution, but we're trying to tell a story of the American Revolution, but one that encompasses all the many different kinds of people who were involved in it. There's about two and a half million people in British North America on the eve of the American Revolution, and surprisingly, not all of them are surnamed Adams or Washington or Jefferson, right? And so there are stories to tell about women, about Native Americans, about people of African descent, about children, about immigrants who are coming from all different sorts of places, and we tell those stories. And that's gotten us some interesting results, right? So when you open a new institution, the press really wants to talk about it. They want to tell the stories. And so, the New York Times wrote a review of us that was actually really positive. And what they said is that we're a new museum of the American Revolution, warts and all, right? So we're talking not just about the big ideals of the, yes, a
2: the-
1: little closer. <laughs> All right, I will hold the mic, is this better? Yes, perfect, okay. So the review that they wrote was actually really positive. What they said was that they were pleased, essentially, that we were telling all of these diverse stories because it helps to understand what's actually happening on the ground in revolutionary America. But we get all sorts of responses, and so here's another one. This is from the Wall Street Journal, so again, right when we opened, April of 2017. At first, the account might seem traditional, but historical scholarship has become vastly more inclusive. So we're also reminded here, not just of higher principles, but of how they fell short for those who were enslaved, some 400,000 in 1776, growing to nearly 4 million by 1860, or for those who preceded the colonists, Native or American Indians. Those histories, along with accounts of women's roles, are part of this chronological narrative. This strengthens the history but weakens the event's symbolic power. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, that feeling that you all just felt? Yeah. So, if the story that we're telling, this is a soapbox I'm gonna try not to climb all the way on top of, y'all. <laughs> But if the symbolism of the story that we're telling requires the deletion of the stories of at least half of the people that are living in this land at this point in time, then maybe the symbolism that we're pulling from this story is incorrect, right? So we're trying to do better. (laughs) And so this guy right here, this is Aaron Burr kind of infamous for various reasons, but maybe not infamous for this reason. This guy right here is John Pierre Burr, Aaron Burr's son, Aaron Burr's mixed-race son. Yeah, so he is the son of Aaron Burr and a woman who was of Indian, as in from India, uh, descent. And the reason, this, this is actually pure serendipity. So my genealogy group, does a volunteer project with a historic African American cemetery right outside of Philadelphia called Eden Cemetery. And just recently, Eden Cemetery with the Aaron Burr Association installed this headstone at the presumed uh, burial site of John Pierre Burr. And so it's got all sorts of important information including that longest line that begins, son of Vice President Aaron Burr. And so why does this matter? How does this tie in to these um, to this topic of secrets and silence? Stuart Fisk Johnson is the president of the Aaron Burr Association, and he was quoted in one of the local newspapers as saying, "A few people didn't want to go into it because Aaron's first wife Theodosia was still alive and dying of cancer." But the embarrassment is not as important as it is to acknowledge and embrace actual living, robust, li- accomplished children. John Pierre Burr was an abolitionist who helped to operate the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia. He married a black woman who was prominent in Philadelphia's free black community and had lots of important impact within the city during the time that he was alive. And so let's look at this quote in a couple of ways. So Annie asked us to think about who are the people that are involved in these decisions about what are the stories that we tell, when do we reveal the stories, and how do we reveal them? So we've got Aaron. I'm on a first name basis with him. We've got <laughs> <laughs> Theodosia and we also have The Living Children, right? So there's John, John also has a sister. What else is there to consider? The embarrassment versus the importance to acknowledge these stories. So as I said, I'm a genealogist. And I don't just do the research, but I actually publish a blog about it. it. It's an occasional, like, seven times blog, and I haven't actually gotten to it in many months, so, like, you can go there, but you're not going to see something from yesterday. <laughs> And what I used to do when I found interesting information is I would just, like, verbally share it with a couple of people. Hey, Mom, this is interesting. Hey, Dad, don't you want to check out this document, et cetera, et cetera. And then I would start to prepare little research documents, and I would take them to family reunions and pass them out to people that I thought would be most interested. Or maybe I would, like, put together an email and shoot it out to some of the members of the family on the side where it's, like, most relevant. But that gets tiring, y'all. What if you just <laughs> take it and you put it in one central location? is like, mind-blowing. What if you put it (laughs) in a central location where lots of people can access it whenever they want? (laughs) So I said, hey, I'm going to put together a blog. But when you decide to start writing about your family and put it on the internet,
3: Hmm.
1: it gets a little tricky. What are the stories you're going to tell? Because goodness, what are the stories that family historians find? How many of you all are genealogists? Anybody in the crowd? So we're nosy. And we become like a dog with a bone, right? Like you hear a whisper of an inkling of a story and you're like, I'ma find this, I'ma find it. It doesn't matter how long it takes, I'm gonna find this and oh, it's gonna be amazing. So what do you do when you know that some of those things that you're gonna find or the things that you found already are challenging? I love my family. This, I should note something by the way. Mm So this presentation is about secrets and silences. Full disclosure, I'm not going to name all of the people in all of the stories, because this session is being recorded. There are certain stories that I would have told you all if this was not going to live forever and ever and ever. Amen. But I'm not going to do that, because this is going to have a life online. <laughs> right? OK. But this is a story that's safe to, to share. So I'm a Whaley through my dad's side of the family. and. Researching his family is super exciting because they come from an area called Steubenville, Ohio, on the Ohio River Valley. And at one point in time, it was known as Little Chicago, full of gangsters and red light district that was very much operational. One of my ancestors on that side of the family ran a, um, we'll call it a houseboat of ill repute. LAUGHTER It operated in the middle of the river, and when the Ohio police tried to shut her down, she would move it to the West Virginia side, (laughs) and vice versa. It was a colorful area, and my people were very much involved. So this is a story about two brothers, Lucius, who's written as Lashy in this story, and Robert Whaley. So... Lucius and Robert, both Negroes, started to fight it out early Sunday morning, police were told, but the brothers interrupted their battle long enough to dodge the patrolman when they arrived to arrest them. After several trips had been made to the place, Robert, who's involved in the fight, called up Sergeant William Consul and wanted to know if the official had a warrant for his arrest. That's like actually pretty prudent. (laughs) Certainly not, Sergeant Consul assured Whaley, but he would like to talk to him about something very important. (laughs) so Robert found Lucius and together they went to the headquarters to see what Sergeant Consul wanted to talk with them about it turned out to be warrants charging them with disorderly conduct filed by Lehman Whaley another one of the Whaley's I love this And the pair had the rest of the night to cool it off in jail these are my people y'all <laughs> here's another one knocked down after drawing a knife and threatening to use it Rufus Littlejohn, same side of the family. A Negro who desires a reputation as a bad man. <laughs> Got what was coming to him at the hands of Mose White, a peaceable Negro, at Sixth and Adam Streets on Saturday afternoon. Littlejohn tanked up on bootleg whiskey. <laughs> Started a fuss and pulled a knife on White who floored him and cut his head badly, the flowing blood taking all the fight out of Littlejohn. Little John has been mixed up in a number of a phrase before this. The people at Six and Adam Streets are growing weary of the choice of their corner for all the recent murderous affrays. That's a lot. I have an ancestor. Now, y'all, I'm a nerd. I'm very much a nerd. Um, and I try really hard to stay out of trouble. But these are my people. <laughs> <laughs> so I just think this is fascinating. So note, by the way, that like we are all laughing at this, right? Like, this is... I love finding these stories because they're amazing, but if these were living people that were related to me, I probably wouldn't be able to laugh at these things. It's also interesting to note that these are both stories about people that I am in some way, shape, or form descended from or from the same um, larger family, and there's a narrative that you could develop about black criminality if I continue to tell these stories. And so it's important to acknowledge that, right? but so what are some of the other stories that people find? So obviously criminal activity and incarceration, violence, domestic and otherwise, right? I found examples of that in my family. Children born out of wedlock, children born prematurely, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Unexpected parentage, especially with all of those DNA tests that are swirling around, people are finding out left and right that dad's not dead, right? You're finding out about adoptions that people didn't want to talk to their children about. You're finding second and third and fourth families, right, happening at the same time, you're finding out about mental illness, right, you're finding about people who are being institutionalized, and you're finding, generally speaking, stories about people that we would consider to be black sheep. That's the most adorable black sheep that I could find. (laughs) So here are the questions that I ask myself as I'm thinking about whether or not I'm going to share these stories in my blog. Why am I doing this work? So long story short, my brother and my sister and I are the first in our family to be born in Philadelphia. My mom's people are from D.C. My dad's people are from Ohio. We did not grow up with our grandparents nearby. We did not grow up with a bunch of cousins. I was not able to sit at my grandmother's lap and like listen to all the stories and things like that. My maternal grandfather died when I was three. My maternal uh, grandmother died when my mom was a kid. I was grandparented on that side by my step-grandmother. I was lucky enough to know members of my biological grandmother's family, but did not sort of have that immersive experience. Like I said, my dad is from Ohio. For complicated reasons, I've only met my grandfather twice, and the second time was about five years ago. So I've had two grandmothers, basically. So I had like a deep desire to know about my family. So if that's the reason I'm doing this research, then when I find something embarrassing, do I want to just put it online? No, because I'm trying to build relationships. I love these people, I care about them, I don't want to hurt them. So it's important for me to think about like what is the impact on the people that I'm talking about. And also, frankly, these people are my informants, right? The living people. So I don't want to destroy those relationships. So who might I negatively impact by sharing these stories? Why might this story not have been shared in the past? How might this impact important relationships? Those are important things to think about. I know things about a certain member of my family. You all know why I'm not naming the name at this point that happened maybe 50, 60 years ago. This person is not the same person they were when those articles were written in the newspaper, and it is not not my job to bring them back up because that person did not ask for that from me. Right, so that's a thing I have to consider. And then if I share this story, how can I do so in a way that is kind, is thoughtful, and sees the human and the humor? Like we were all able to find the humor in that story, but we also have to think about what was that like for their mother? What was that like for the extended family in that town who maybe weren't engaged in that behavior? So how can I write about that in a way that's reflective? So my suggestion is ask yourselves those same questions when you are considering whether or not you're going to share this information. And then bonus suggestion, practice empathy, right? And not even just for the person that you are sharing information with, but also, as Annie was saying, for the people that you were sharing information about. Right, use your eyes to try to imagine looking through their eyes. Use your brain, right, to think about what their experiences are like. I was gonna do like a pretty heart, but then I was like, the heart is a muscle, and we need to be flexing it when we're doing this kind of work, right? And try to walk in their shoes. And so then my questions for you all: what do you think is the line between sharing meaningful stories from your ancestors' lives to better understand their experiences and being, and this is not a direct quote, no one has accusing me of this, of being nosy for no reason. <laughs> right? What's the difference? And then number two, is there anything from your family's past that you truly, really, truly, truly wish that you hadn't found out? And if so, why?
0: Thank you, Adrian. You left us some good questions to ponder. I'm going to turn it over to Dennis Pickerel from Stenton.
2: Dennis. Thank you, Annie. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I think the okay. sort of uh, game show next door has dispersed, so <laughs> hopefully yes. I don't have to be Bob Barker up here. I'm going to try and speak, but if I'm not if I'm spe- not speaking loud enough, let me know, and I'll pick up the mic. Okay, um, my, my, uh, my project is uh, a little bit different from uh, Annie and Adrian's in that... Um, It's really about one specific story um, at Stenton, the site that I'm working at. And the project itself is called Inequality in Bronze, Monumental Plantation Legacies. Um, But just to give you a little bit of background, um, my site is Stenton. It's the house that you see in the upper right-hand corner here. It is uh, the uh, 1730 home of William Penn's secretary, James Logan. So if you're walking through Logan Circle while you're here in Philadelphia... (laughs) Uh, that's the, the gentleman we're talking about. Uh, it's been a house museum for over 100 years, since 1899, um, established by the National Society of the Colonial Dames in Pennsylvania, who still administer it today. Um, and It is located in a neighborhood uh, just on the border of Germantown and kind of north-northwest Philadelphia known as Nice Town. Nice Town is uh, very unlike um, Center City in that it is a city of row homes. It's a neighborhood. Uh, it's a residential community. Um, the population in the community is largely African-American, and there are a lot of quality of life issues uh, in the neighborhood. <laughs> About 45% of the population lives below the poverty threshold. Uh, crime is a major issue, for those of you who followed the uh, recent police shooting um, that was in our neighborhood. Um, so um, at Stenton, we've largely told, we have uh, interpretive themes that deal with um uh, the diverse uh, community to lived to Stenton at one time, but quite frankly, the story has largely revolved around James Logan, who's been kind of the son of the interpretation for many years. Uh, and there's a real disconnect between the story we're telling and the lives that our neighbors are, lead, uh, are leading today, we're, and we're not connecting with what's going on in the present. The other thing I'd say is, is that while we felt like we'd done a pretty good job of passively connecting with our community uh, through educational programs, a lot of family-friendly free programs, that sort of thing, Um, We never really asked our neighbors to be a part of the work we're doing. And just opening the gate and welcoming people in isn't necessarily uh, reaching out to them. So if you're inside of Stenton, it looks like the picture you see up above there. But if you're walking by Stenton on the sidewalk, this is what it looks like. Mm. So keep that in mind. But the genesis of the project really started about three years ago when we were contacted by the Philadelphia Association for Public Art. And they offered us this kind of innocuous looking monument on the left. It's about nine foot tall, it's bronze. It's a monument to James Logan that was created for another institution that uh, no longer, well, the institution itself exists, but the building that it was created for no longer exists. Created in 1939, probably been stored in the basement of the art museum for about 50 years. Uh, and the art museum's doing a major renovation project, so they were looking for some place for this thing to go, and Stenton was the, the natural uh, place. But it really prompted us to think about another object that had been in our collection, and that's the object on the right. And that is a plaque to a once enslaved woman named Dinah. The plaque was erected in 1912 by the National Society of the Colonial Dames in the Site and Relic Society of Germantown. And it commemorates a story, this kind of mythic story, um, about Dinah saving the house from burning by the British during the Revolution. Uh, And the specific language of the plaque says, in memory of Dinah, the faithful colored caretaker of Stenton, who by her quick thought and presence of mind saved the mansion from being burned by British soldiers. So this is arrested in Stenton Park. Uh, it kind of lives there until the mid 20th century, is taken down, and then ends up at Stenton. So um, we have to think about right the language of the plaque, what it's commemorating, but we also have to think about the context of this plaque. And what it's really doing is not just commemorating a story about Dinah, but really portraying her as a faithful servant. As Um, There is some evidence that something actually happened. One of the the Logan descendants in 1821 actually wrote down a story about the house being saved, but Dinah's name doesn't get associated with this story until 1897, and this is about the same time that a number of these kind of faithful servants to enslaved people, uh, these sort of monuments to faithful servants are going up around the country. In fact, the United Daughters of the Confederacy Uh, in the early 20th century tried to convince Congress to actually erect a monument to Mammies on the National Mall. Hopefully that failed. Um. But in our case what's obscured about this, the real secret history, is the real story of Dinah because Dinah actually was a real person. So for a hundred years Germantown had been celebrating this myth of Dinah but in fact we know that she was a very real person. We know that she came to Stenton Uh, enslaved with her daughter. She was actually essentially part of a dowry when uh, an Emlyn married a Logan. We know that she asked for and was granted her freedom in 1776. Uh, There's also a pretty extraordinary story of uh, her husband. She and her husband are separated when she comes to Stenton. He remains enslaved, and he is uh, going to be sold off at some point because he's in poor health, and he's very concerned that he's going to be Uh, sold far away, and will not see his family anymore. So Dinah and her husband successfully lobby the Logans to purchase him. Now the Logans are Quakers, and at this point, um, the Quaker meeting forbids their members from um, purchasing slaves. They can own slaves, but they can't purchase them. So Dinah and her husband really have to convince the Logans to do this. They're very hesitant to do it. Uh, But ultimately, um, uh, they concede, they purchase him, the family is reunited. And we know about this because the Quaker meeting actually investigated the whole episode. uh, The Logans are sort of cleared, it's deemed a humanitarian act. Um, But she's someone who fought to reunite her family. So this is the the Dinah that we want to memorialize today. And the whole project is really about thinking about how we would commemorate her in the 21st century. uh, As a mother, as someone who had a family, as someone who fought for that family. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, Equally important as part of this project, in addition to kind of rethinking uh, Dinah and revealing her true story, is um, working with our neighborhood to do this. Um, It was very important to us that this not just be uh, our conception of um, how Dinah should be commemorated in the way she was in 1912, but that it be a collective uh, neighborhood uh, consensus. Uh, about what that memorial should look like. Um, So a big piece of it is about um, working with our community and um, working together um, to create something new and to elevate her story. And equally important, we were very much aware that of course there's this whole national conversation going on uh, about monuments at this time and there is uh, a major absence of monuments to African American individuals uh, in our public spaces and landscapes. Um, And so we were hoping to rectify uh, that as well. So just to give you a little bit of background about the project, the major piece of it, again, is uh, working with our neighbors um, to think about how we tell Dinah's story and how we portray her. Um, so any of you who have seen Dina Bailey or maybe went to her session yesterday, um, she is with the International Sites of Conscience. So she's an AASLH council member, but she is our um, community engagement facilitator. So she's helping us structure these talks. And a lot of it is about, um, about what um, the ideas that people bring, their own kind of um, perceptions of Dinah. Everybody has this idea about her. Is she, is she courageous? Is she this? Is she that? Um, and how are we going to think about that and portray that? And whether we're going to deal strictly in facts or we're going to deal in representation. And so we have, we've had to talk through kind of all of these issues. So um, telling the story isn't as simple as telling what's on paper. Uh, it's about what people want to convey. Um, We also have a a curator-led process to actually select an artist uh, that we've been working through. I'm going to move kind of quickly through because I know I'm running out of time here. (coughs) But you can see there are many other components of the project, uh, research. We actually did a ground-penetrating radar study in Stenton Park to try and locate where she's buried. We know that she was buried somewhere on Stenton's grounds. Um, We have a summit, we're looking at this as a lead-in to interpretive planning, so ultimately we will have to re-examine our entire interpretive plan and think about how we balance uh, the stories that we're telling. Um, So we're experimenting with some of that throughout it. We're prototyping new exhibits, there's a little bit more about the project team, Um, but I really wanted to get to, uh, again, just some of the specific community conversations before my time ends. You know, some of these questions that have come up about, um, you know, who is participating. Philadelphia is a very neighborhood-centric place, so it was really important that we had neighbors immediately around us participating and not a wave of neighbors from Germantown, which is literally just two blocks away, but is a very different community participating in this. Um, But, you know, what does community engagement look like? What does success look like? Our concept of that is not necessarily the same as what our neighbor's concept is. So it's important for us to capture all this and memorialize it and really come to agreement on what our commitments are to one another. But the importance of race and gender and recognizing Dina as an individual, you know, as we talked about it, it became very clear that, you know, um, it was important that we have artists who were both African-American and women as part of this. This idea that we were memorializing a women really meant a lot uh, to some of the people who are participating uh, uh, in the, uh, the project. And this idea of just, again, who is Dinah? Who are we talking about here? Um, One of our participants believes very strongly that um, Dinah is descended from the Bustle family, a prominent African-American family that traces their origins back to 1732 in the Philadelphia area. We haven't found any hard genealogical evidence to prove that. but I think we have to remove ourselves from our traditional way of thinking about as historians and and really say, well, maybe this is a possibility. We have to, you know, uh, equivocate. Um, we worked with a designer um, to, uh, just on some marketing concepts, and they really came up with a, a really a young concept of Dyna. You know, trying to get away from that mammy stereotype of someone who's older and uh, you know has been marked by years of work and uh, these kinds of things. The mammy stereotype, the whole idea of the mammy stereotype, has been a major issue. Has been a major issue for us. Um, And it's something that we um, really tried to deal with in one of our last community engagement sessions. So, um, uh, you know, our board and staff has sort of, I think, told this story without really reflecting on it a lot over the years. But it's also something our neighbors, both black and white, have really embraced for a long time in our community. Uh, In fact, a lot of our neighbors who are participating in the project see Dinah as a heroine. They talk about her in terms of being a preservationist, about there maybe not being a Stenton Park, had she not saved this house, for instance. So that was something we had to talk about, is why is the plaque problematic, and what are the things it can convey, and how can we avoid that in a future memorial? Um, so we actually worked with a historian from uh, George Mason, who came in and helped us talk about some of these things, thinking about the Mammy stereotype, not just about its historic origins, but how it still filters into our culture today. Um, you know, from uh, things like uh, Aunt Jemima's pancakes to the Pine Saw Lady, to all these different things that we might not think about. Um, and then I will just end up with uh, this idea of some of these takeaways. Uh, we've talked a little bit about whose history and whose facts, but um, the third bullet point, don't make assumptions about what is important to your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> we've, we developed some close relationships with some of our community members who are participating in this who have become community ambassadors for us and helped us uh, reach out and bring others in. And I had an interesting conversation um, with one gentleman who uh, is a leader of the Stenton Park Advisory Council, And he said, "You know, Dennis, you know, can we just talk frankly for a minute? You know, there's been something that's been on my mind, and you know, I just like to talk honestly with you about it, without us, you know, feeling like there's going to be any hurt feelings or or anything like that." I said, "Of course, you know, let's, you know, I always want you to tell me what's on your mind. Uh, The whole point of this project is for us to be honest with each other and 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 have a relationship built on that." And he said, "Well, you know, if this were a project about James Logan and rethinking how we tell the story of James Logan, and I'm paraphrasing here." But um, would I be here? And so that was something that we really had to think about as a staff. Obviously we're committed to long-term community engagement, but we shouldn't just make assumptions about the kind of history that people are interested in. Uh, Many of our neighbors are interested in all aspects of Stenton's uh, story and how we tell that. So so I'll leave it there.
0: Thanks, Dennis. Super interesting. I like the idea of uh, Dinah as a preservationist. That's not a way I would have conceptualized her. Um, so next up we have Charisse Blakeney. Charisse is a public historian with um, Bartram's Garden in Philadelphia, National Historic Landmark that you should all visit if you have time uh, during your visit to Philadelphia. Hi. 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 So,
3: the official title, this was just the title of my research report after my findings, but the official title of the project was Stories We Know, uh, which came from my project manager, who I now know is here, Um, (laughs) and she sort of put it very plain. We can't tell stories we don't know, and so... Um, And so the project starts out with a census record. Uh, Bartram's Garden has their own archive and so much of the archival material they have was related to uh, the white male history that Bartram's Garden uh, was sort of steeped in at that point. Uh, but they found a transcript of a 1790 census that showed that a non-white free person was living in the household. But there was no materials uh, related to who this person was, why they were in the home, nothing along those lines. Uh, And so that began the process of trying to find out who this person was, but also sort of reckoning with The garden, which is in southwest Philadelphia, the community around the garden today is predominantly African-American and African-immigrant, and then you sort of step off the street and into the garden and into an entirely different world. Uh, The first thing we had to do was look at the narrative that was already constructed, and that was uh, John Bartram as the emancipator. Uh, there was a story that was passed through the family that John Bartram emancipated uh, his male slave. And the male slave, I use Harvey in quotations because we were working off of documentation and we had no documentation. The image of Harvey uh, sort of basically supported the um, as you used it earlier, the, the faithful servant myth. We see him in the uh, he's his, his image is used on the cover of the Metropolitan section of the Philadelphia Inquirer. On the right side at the top uh, that's actually the very top part of a calendar has absolutely nothing to do with Harvey but He's there, and on the bottom right, that's an image from a 1923 tour book that Bartram's was distributing, and that image was of Harvey's grave. Uh, The the inscription read, uh, Harvey's grave, faithful Negro servant, Bartram's faithful Negro servant. So the initial problems or questions I had with the existing narrative was, how do we know John Bartram was an abolitionist? The only document that would have pointed in that direction was a a petition that he and his son signed with 122 other people asking for uh, strong enforcement of the Gradual Abolition Act in Pennsylvania in 1780. But one document does not make someone an abolitionist. And it sort of brought up other ideas of what does it mean to be an abolitionist? Have we created narratives of who the good guy is when we think about an abolitionist? Someone who believes that slavery is wrong isn't necessarily someone who also believes in racial equality. And so because I didn't find documents that supported the existing narrative, we agreed that branching out was a good idea. Uh, Looking at more of the family members, looking at the history of the people who lived in the community that weren't discussed. And there was George Bartram, George is an interesting character. Uh, George was magistrate, and following the 1793 Fugitive Slave Act, if you wanted to register your slave in Pennsylvania or you wanted to take them out of this state, you needed to go before the magistrate, prove ownership, get a stamped paper. So you'd go see George. George has questionable uh, invalid indentured contracts that he signed off on. Uh, There's at least two cases that we found evidence for where someone brought a black person before George with no documents, and they were able to have this person signed into an indentured contract. This is a uh, screenshot from the uh, American Law Journal where uh, George signed off on Augustus Stevenson being signed into an indentured contract. Uh, His father signed him in, it was for seven years, and a few years into the contract, the man that Augustus was signed into a contract with took him back to George, and he sold his contract to someone else. At no point was the father notified, and the man who did the selling said, well, Augustus is okay with it. So 14-year-old Augustus supposedly agreed to have his contract sold to someone else. And George Bartram being present for both of these transactions, signed off. The father takes it to court. It goes all the way to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. uh, And it is found that the indenture is invalid. The other indenture he signed off on was a woman who was enslaved in Delaware. And after gaining her freedom, she comes to uh, Philadelphia looking for work. She's directed to a very specific person. His name isn't listed, uh, but the whole story is laid out in Isaac T. Hopper's uh, book. But he's um, seemingly okay. He ha- invites her to come and stay at his home until she can get on her feet, and then she takes him—or I'm sorry—he takes her to George Bartram. And in front of George, he signs off to have her indentured for seven, I'm sorry, for five years. This is an adult. However, she's not literate, and so she does put her mark on an indentured contract. When she tries to leave her employer, who she believes is her employer, uh, and she's asking for her final wages, she we're told that she's there for five years, and he paid $150 for her, she owes him five years. This is also an invalid adventure. Then we have Anne Bartram. Uh, Anne Bartram owned two slaves that she manumitted in 1792. Uh, We don't know the relationship of those slaves to each other. We do know that they shared the last name Clark. And We can't necessarily call Ann Bartram some great emancipator because the people she freed purchased their freedom. So this wasn't a conscious decision on Ann's part to reward or give freedom to the people she enslaved. They bought their way out. Uh, The first was Mary Clark, and Mary Clark purchased her freedom for 54 pounds and on the reverse side of Mary Clark's manumission document on this top half is an agreement uh, to manumit Grace Clark and Grace Clark at the time puts up 12 pounds 13 shillings and five pence towards her freedom with an agreement that within 30 days they would pay off the balance because Anne wanted 30 pounds total for Grace uh, this project basically becomes a retelling or um, we're constructing a narrative now that includes not just the Bartram family, but the surrounding neighborhood. <laughs> and so one of the things that we try to focus on is what Harvey's grave site looks like now. This isn't even what it looks like now. This was sort of a a deteriorated uh, image, but there is no marker to let you know where Harvey was buried. Uh, In one of the tour books that was being given out in the early uh, 1900s, the mentioning of Harvey was along the lines of his final resting place where it should be in his master's yard. And so the idea of Harvey attached to the garden and then thinking about the neighborhood outside the garden, there was a very strong effort to combine the community, have a conversation with the community, share the stories that we'd found of people who lived in that same community ages ago. And On the right at the top, that's a list of the uh, black household, black households on Darby Road. It's Woodland Avenue now. Uh, but what one of the things we did was with the youth workers at the garden who are um, African-American teens, we put together a poetry workshop. Uh, Ashlyn, the project manager, invited Jasmine Combs, a local poet, to sort of sit with them and have them read through some of the history that we found and really grapple with their thoughts and their feelings on it. And so one of the things that I, I know that Andy wanted us to really think about ways that we share these difficult stories and how we share them. But one of the things, and I agree with empathy, but one of the things that I would sort of pose to you as people who do the research of looking up hard stories and sharing those hard stories is how do you then offer yourself self-care it's trauma other people's trauma that you are sharing with others and they're taking that on but you yourself as the person doing the sharing you also need to be aware of any trauma you're taking on yourself in doing the work that you do
0: Thanks, Charisse. That was great. Thank you, Adrian and Charisse and Dennis. Um, I'm, I have like a few thoughts percolating, but I just want to turn it over to the our audience here. Does anybody have any questions? We have the wrong session surveys. Is that true of all the surveys? Mm. Okay. If anybody sees the volunteer walking by, okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for that. Thank, yeah. Um, any questions for our panel in the back? Yes. Mm-hmm. So how do we tell difficult stories in real time with people? In your particular case, Quaker, visitors at Arch Street Meeting House in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Okay. so how do we tell difficult stories and retain our relationships that we've built with our constituents? Do you want to answer that, Adrienne? I feel like you are a very front-facing educator.
1: (laughs) So at the Museum of the American Revolution, we have a bunch of different, I guess you could call them stakeholders who uh, come in. So we've got funders and sponsors of various sorts. We've got sort of general audience guests who come in. We've got children who come in, about 70,000 every school year so far. Uh, And we also have members of the descendant community that come through. And all of these groups are not necessarily distinct from one another. So children come in who have been raised on stories about how glorious their ancestor was. right? Adult general audience visitors come in and have the same thing. In fact, relatively recently... We did a program, that just a a short talk, that focused on a specific object in our galleries about a person who has a complicated legacy uh, from the American Revolution. This person was known both as a war hero and also as as someone who murdered Native Americans. And we were committed to telling both of those stories. And on one of the tours that we did, just sort of like a family highlights tour, a family came in that was descended from that person. And the educator did not know that going in. And oftentimes you're not going to know that unless they make a point of saying it when they purchase their tickets. And as she told the story, the person was uh, combative, argumentative, and upset about these stories. And so I think a couple of things that we've said tie into that a bit. So empathy. Empathy. Is really important and not just like institutional empathy but how do you train your staff to have empathy for the people that they're going to face who are experiencing all of these different emotions right and so for you all who are trying to figure out how to structure a way to share challenging histories with parishioners who might not be comfortable with those stories why are they going to be uncomfortable with those stories what are the things that those stories are going to pull up in them? Is it challenging their understanding of who they are as individuals, as an organization? Right? Like, what, is it, what are the buttons that it's pushing for them? Uh, in terms of self-care, what are the buttons it's pushing for your staff? There are a lot of staff and a lot of museums and historic sites who were never trained to talk about difficult stories and who wanted to work at that location, whatever the location was, because they had the glorious image of who lived and worked there. Right. And so, how are you training them to deal with their own stuff and also practice empathy for the people that they're going to be facing? I feel like those two things are huge. How do you help people to have difficult conversations? How to balance that with grace, with humor with the ability to feel upset and be okay in the weirdness of that moment and, like, acknowledge it and say that this is, this is a really challenging conversation you and I are having, and I just want to sort of note that because it hurts to see how painful this is for you, and it hurts me to have to reflect on how difficult this story is and what this experience must have been like for the two people who went through it in the past, right? So being able to sort of talk about that, I think all of that is really important, but I'm sure that these folks have other things they want to say.
2: <laughs> no I I mean I would just say we've been grappling with a, a similar uh, not necessarily our our audience uh, per se but um our board specifically you know for us part of this project is about institutional change and and our our board is uh is affluent uh, almost entirely white uh, many of them have um uh, in their uh ancestry um uh, slave owners so yeah, we, we've, we've had to grapple with that, and it's been really some of the same things that, that Adrian said. It's uh, training, uh, working with uh, good facilitators, um, finding stories that they can connect with. Um, I'm sort of blanking on the name now, but there is a Chestnut Hill resident who did a documentary recently about discovering her family's uh, history of slave owning that has really helped our board members kind of connect with that and, and, and understand the implications of, of that. So.
0: And I know that Arch Street is a new member of the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. That's awesome. They've helped us um do dialogue trainings and get our staff able to have complex conversations that connect the past and the present and kind of move through discomfort. So I recommend them. Any other questions? Yes. I had a question regarding since sometimes feeling the need to apologize it, uh, mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, So the the I had mentioned the need to apologize as a representative of a penitentiary where someone died an excruciating death. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to answer that. I think it's just like uh, yeah. I guess it's sort of a historic empathy that I'm having for this um, person who was incarcerated in the building in which I work and make a living, and um, we have group tours, and we're we we have a complex interpretive framework and i think we're doing really smart good work there um and it's really complicated and when i think i actually met that particular researcher she came to the site and i popped out and said hi to her and i was talking to her in our museum store and it was like very surreal that her ancestor had died in basically a torture device in this building um but i do think you know we're we're occupying really kind of strange complex spaces and um I don't think I ultimately apologize to her, but I think that um, sometimes I do feel the need when I'm talking to genealogists to say like I'm sorry that your ancestor had it so hard or um, that this is a complicated history. But but then I'm getting so many genealogy requests with with so many family secrets and so much like layers of shame from so many different people that I can then kind of use that as a tool to say like there are a lot of other people going through what you're going through reevaluating their family trees and uh, you're not alone.
1: Just a question. Actually, just a question for Annie. So see if you want to get into this. Are you ever concerned that people are going to ask for restitution in some way from your institution? Like when historic houses have histories or whatever historic site has a history of something horrible, possibly criminal, happened to somebody else. Are you ever concerned that descendants will say, what are you going to do to fix this?
2: Whoa.
0: <laughs> Did I just ask about reparations? Yeah. <laughs> can you hold this? So you can then drop it. <laughs> um, I've never uh, really thought about that. Um, I've never encountered someone um, with that. Most most of the time, I'm encountering people feeling like shame and embarrassment, and like my ancestor did this heinous thing. Um, so, and I think there's a particular. American flavor around, like, if you commit a crime, you should do the time, and that you should then internalize that shame, that that's a part of your history, even though it's way more complicated than that. Um, And generally, I don't, I have researched a lot of individual records of prisoners, and I haven't come across a a ton that seem to be, like, false convictions. Um, But maybe, maybe that will happen someday. And um, yeah, it's a great question. We're getting real up here yeah go thanks for that any any questions from the uh, second row yes I'm just going to repeat the question because we're recording the session. Um, how do we engage and encourage visitors to get into that difficult history mindset if they're expecting to just have kind of a light history at a historic house museum or a, or a historic garden?
3: That's a great question. Um, because Bartram's Garden, if you haven't been, it is one of the most beautiful places you'll ever go. I mean, once you've entered the garden, it's picturesque. People have weddings there. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. And then I show up to take you on a tour going, now we're going to talk about slavery and digital mm-hmm. <laughs> servitude and man, let's go. It, it, it is <laughs> hard, um, but at the same time, I mean, I study slavery. It's hard. History is hard. And so uh, once I'm done talking about certain people, places, and events, if you're uncomfortable, good. That means you were listening. That means I shared. You engaged. And the best I can do is leave space for you to sort of grapple with your thoughts and your feelings. And if I can help with that in any way, great. But once we have entered the space where the sharing is happening, now we both have work to do. And I don't think we can necessarily I don't really think it's my job or my place to um, make it easier for you or make you comfortable in this process as much as much as it's to help you interpret and be there for you afterwards.
2: Yeah, and I don't I don't know if I mentioned this when I did my presentation I should have if I didn't but our our project is a little over a year into a two-year project. So we're about halfway through. So for us This is all a learning process, and we're trying to document it as we go along. Um, I can say we we haven't really answered that question as far as adults go. Um, We've certainly implemented some things with children that we do with our educational programs. Uh, We now have um, for our guide corps, um, as part of their training process, uh, regular racial competency training um, to help them in how they think about and communicate with their guides. Um, And we'll actually be, uh, Dina again will be working with uh, International site of Conscience Methodology uh, this coming year and some of our training. Um, I'd say um, with um, uh, with our adult tours, we are already, again, kind of experimenting and taking steps towards rethinking our interpretation. So one very simple thing that we've done, the Dyna plaque that you saw, is uh, it just hangs on an easel at the moment. It was removed from its stone it's on. And so we um, decided to put it in the entry hall, which is the first space that you experience when you come into the house. Um, so that forces our guides to deal with that storyline and, and integrate it into the tour as soon as visitors come into the space. And it also um, hopefully avoids the kind of stereotypical tour of talking about servants in service spaces, whether they be upstairs in the garret or in the kitchen or whatever outbuilding uh it is we wanted uh, Dinah to be uh to have the same level of balance in the story that we were giving to James Logan or Deborah norris Logan or whoever uh, it is so
0: any other que- uh yes blue shirt. for those of us, for, for those descendants who are grappling with it from a, from a personal perspective and maybe how to talk about or think about family pride when you come across these, these issues in the past mm-hmm. and how they can share it in with the, the next generation mm-hmm. in their family. Are there resources for um, grappling with difficult family histories, um, particularly the histories of people who owned other people? Um, And there are resources out there to (laughs) grapple with that, and how we conceptualize our own family histories. Do you all know of anything?
2: (laughs) Why are there so many tough questions? (laughs) I know.
0: This is why we put the panel together, to crowdsource these ideas. Yeah,
1: that's that's a great question. Um, I guess a starting point for me would be asking the question of how does this family normally share? the story of their history because you could understand how if no difficult topics had ever come up before this would be like an like this is the moment where oh my god everything I've ever known is a lie click right like everything shuts down and if the family is interested in digging into this I think the best thing the family can do is model that you know, um, and there might not be perfect resources out there for that, but just being willing to engage in difficult conversations, just being willing to say, when I found this out, I was shocked too, and I really didn't know how to handle this, right, and continuing to say, I mean, I don't know, but it, I'm still trying to figure out how to process this, but if you ever want to talk about it, Let's just see. And, like, we all know how kids and teens are. Like, sometimes they need a moment. Sometimes they need to talk about a thing, leave it, come back to it, leave it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that being okay with that process and not feeling like it has to be a quick, like, we're going to open this door back up and it's going to be all family all the time again, you know. Um, One other thing I'll say that's a little more lighthearted is that family connects through food. (laughs) And so what are the ways that we use family recipes and memories around food to talk about who we are and where we've come from? And that maybe there's a way that that can open some doors to conversation.
0: I know we're, yeah, sure. We're almost out of time, but yeah.
3: Did you have something to add? We
2: were wondering, Dennis, were you talking about Katrina Brown and Traces of the Trace? Yes. Because
3: her cousin, Tom DeWolf, who went on her with that journey, Mm -hmm. has written his own book about the experience.
0: Thank you. Tom DeWolf Gathering at the Table. Any other resources? I'm afraid I can't take any more questions. Resources. Yes. Um two quick hands in the back. Thank you. Resource hand in the back. Acknowledging our benefits and and working for a a more just present and future. Thank you so much. Uh, We'll be here a few more minutes if you have more questions. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.